Welcome to episode 25 of On the Rocks with Joe Warren. As we start this edition, I want to thank all my guests over the last two years for their time and insight. I began this project during the initial stages of COVID, not sure the direction it would take. I simply wanted to engage smart, driven people I know during a time when human contact was limited to see how they were coping. What's evolved are stories of inspiration that I never fathomed. What's proven is that life will not work out as you expect, and it's how you deal with that reality that defines your character. All my guests today demonstrate some version of that reality. I also want to give special thanks to my colleague Parker Allen, who is the mix master behind each edition. He painstakingly edits each version and it's a laborious process. I truly appreciate all his efforts. Today I'm joined by Ethan Caldwell, the Chief Development Officer of Mix Mode. While Ethan and I battle for most flamboyant golf outfits at the club on occasion, we've become good friends and I've noticed his substantial personal and business success. His technology and entrepreneurial skills are first class and he recently just conducted a substantial equity race for Mix Mode, which is quite a task in this environment. Life has been an adventure for Ethan, and I'm sure you'll enjoy his story. For those folks that don't know your background and history, I guess I'll, I'll say we've probably been the biggest competitors, you know, at the club with our outfits, really. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only guy who can match your color. I just, I try to keep up every time I go to the range. I'm like, I better find something neon. I got to find some neon before I go. So, but actually, that's a great place to start. Like, where did you get your flair for... For color, because I like it, but you and I are odd out there, I yeah, think. you know, I, I haven't basically spent most of my professional career in Seattle. I was made a lot of fun of there, because, you know, like, <laughs> neon, neon orange and neon green, unless you're going to Seattle game, doesn't fit in. Uh, I don't know where I got it. Like, I just, it, you know, so I, I actually figure when I came out here, I, I probably get 50% of comments, because there's you here. <laughs> <laughs> and there's other people, you know, like that's about it. <laughs> whenever I tell people who are coming from Seattle, like, if you have things you don't wear in Seattle or New York that are bright, bring them down here. I guess people you know, do wear some exotic clothing here. Yeah. I mean, a little bit flair, a little bit of flair, but yeah. it's a, it's a conservative club, so well, flair reflects personality, you know. So if you feel this is not a dark and dreary culture here, no, that's for sure. And the right, weather keeps so. you so active. But you, you're a California boy. If I, yeah. if I read my notes properly. Yeah, I spent most, uh, I kind of split my time growing up between Southern California and Washington, D.C. area. Uh, but I still consider myself more of a Southern California than anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and colors go well there, of course. You got, and you were there till how, when did you leave? Was it Pasadena? Pasadena. I left, well, I worked after college. Uh, I was a school teacher in a prison for 12th graders. Yeah, juvenile detention center called it, and uh, but I was just prepping for grad school then, and and um, was actually wanted as you saw. I think I told you I, was, I wanted to be a politician, so I was like, I had a chance to go play small club basketball in France, and I'm like, no, I need to get my career on track. So it was all part of stepping stone. They could work in the prison, go to graduate school, and uh, I was I moved back east because I was going to stay and go to. Southern California for grad school, but the last year I was teaching in prison, they had the Rodney King ride. Oh, right. And it was all around me. You know, I'm 
teaching in it, and I just L.A. was a toxic place. So I'm like, let me get back east. So, but halt for a minute. College yeah. and then prison education. Like, <laughs> not a lot of people do that. I mean, I'm just saying. Like, there had to be some. Well, you know, interest there was it something that you cared about. That I don't know. Well, that's a that's a very awesome and unique start of your life, frankly. So yeah, well, it was uh, for me. Uh, like my passion on charities has always been kind of combined with you know, I, I, for a small guy, five eleven who could dunk. You know, like I only had so far I could go to basketball, but I grew up. I took as far as I could, and. Uh, but because of that, I grew up playing in inner city gyms yeah, everywhere. So totally. like uh had a passion for certainly like when I had my kids, and I realized how much charities that are, are providing things for kids in inner cities has always been a passion of mine. So like started when I was a school teacher. You know, I had a chance to go I knew I was gonna take a couple of years off and I'm building toward a political career and I had a chance to go teach at a couple good really good private schools and I said, No way, like I'm going in down what's the hardest place I can go teach. So That's cool. I did in the prison and uh it was probably one of the hardest jobs I ever had because I was assaulted like three times. And um, but it, it was great. I mean, there's just kids, you know, they're just kids, and they just had don't have support structure that we provide our kids. And so it, it was uh, I fit in naturally with them because I can go in any gym anywhere and start playing basketball and be confident and make friends. Uh, so not much different teaching in prison, you know. Like I actually had a funny thing where I started they moved me up after a month to teach 12th graders and. I got their respect because I said, who thinks they can beat me in a dunk contest? And everybody's <laughs> looking at me like tattoos everywhere. Like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this crying little white guy. And uh, so I'd take him out there and and they'd just all be like, oh my gosh, the t-shirt can jump. He's a white spud web. But I got, I got credibility on campus. Every, so I grew up in Kentucky season. and I played, we were kind of about a mile or so from our nearest like got friends that were our age, my brother and I. And I started in basketball because the guy closest in my neighborhood, which was you know a good, a good ways away, uh, was a hoops player, and it's Kentucky, and so you have to. It's Kentucky, I mean that's all right? he did. So we got into it. I mean it was Surprising serious. You're such a great golfer because you came from Kentucky. <laughs> ah, it's just I can do everything, Ethan. Let's not limit myself, okay? <laughs> um, no, but I mean it's funny. I but from about I don't know eight or nine through all the way through to college. I mean my my posse was. All the guys on the basketball team. I mean, and you know, um, and I loved it. It was great, and we had a full court basketball at my my home in Kentucky. I mean, it wasn't you know amazing, but it was nice. Um, full court, and great. we had just guys coming over from all over, and I I loved it. Um, and then I tinkered with the idea of like I should maybe play in college, and I was like, same five eleven, and just like there's zero chance you're going anywhere with this. So I, I hear you, but that's cool. My my father, my father's father taught English in a prison system in Florida for a while. So, um, you know, it's uh, it, it really helped my father with his English, and it's kind of transcended into our, our my family, my kids. But it's interesting how little just little things like that affect you. So Yeah, for sure. But then you bounced into law, big change, prosecutor. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, well, I went, remember, I was, my whole thing uh, coming out of college, like, I wanted to run for office. Like, I was a like, what's that political, all about? political like, junkie. That was you my wanted career. to be, like, straight to the presidency? Or yeah, you like, I was, off? you know, I've totally changed my party affiliation <laughs> since I've gotten older and wiser. But, like, when I was younger, I was running precincts for Democratic presidential. I was president of college Democrats for two years. No way. And uh, so, because that was my life. I was, like, I was had the junkie at intern Capitol Hill. Uh, 
I loved it. And um, that's what I thought I'd do. So law school is a natural progression, right? I taught in prison, go to law school, and then became a prosecutor right after that. And then right after I started becoming a prosecutor, my best friends from college, my basketball team, was starting up a company, brought his business plan in Seattle. And he's like, never really, you know, I need you. Like, I'm overwhelmed with paperwork, trying to do a rapid IPO. And uh, so I talked to my newly new wife at that point and we made a really immediate pivot and said, let's just go try this for two or three years. Yeah. Cause for yeah. me, I can just go get some private sector experience, come back, and, you know, it's going to, I need that to help my political career anyway. Uh, and that's what got me into the technology space. Got it. 1996, I went out and joined the internet gold rush. Well, before you went tech-wise, you were a prosecutor in Maryland? In Maryland, yeah. Wow. Eastern Shore, Maryland. We were on, my county was on Route uh, 13 that goes up and down, or, uh, sorry, 17, sorry. Yeah, yeah. That comes through here, yeah. up and down the East Coast. And all the big gangs in New York trafficking drugs would always elect to go up Route 17 because they... Um, didn't have to mess with the federal prosecutors. The interstate prosecutors were people like me weren't as good. So they don't go up 95, they go up 17. Gotcha. So I was just, <clears throat> yeah, even though I was only prosecuted for a minute, a lot of, a lot of drug, jury trials. I tried, to, I tried to try everything I could because I knew it was going to be there forever and my boss was supportive. He's like, you only get in trouble if you plead something out. I'm like, well, I don't plead anything out. How, did you do a lot? I mean, how many do you think you did? I, know, I probably mean. did. I mean, in a short period of time, I probably did nine jury trials which is kind of like usually don't do that as your prosecutor usually you're, you know you plead most of them out if you got that same docket you're looking at half that load yeah yeah, yeah. get to a jury that's a big change from the education you were doing into sort of prosecuting people like is it just how, how was that transition well like? i had that was part of like i started in law school to change over my party allegiance and part of it was because i Went to law school and immediately started like I was I was gunning pretty hard like for an early office to run for and so I started running this group on campus and had uh, set some forms for a political campaign where I had the attorney general candidates come down and I was the moderator and uh, so I went and asked them later I said can I get involved in your campaign so I met, met the Democrat guy first of course because I was a Democrat at that point. And he gave me, like, he turned me off so much, Joe. Uh, he was just like, who are you? What's your family name? And, you know, like, well, you're not from here. And, like, you're not really interested. And I met with the, so I met, had lunch with the Republican candidate and uh, just totally uh, was a wonderful guy. Like, just kind of opened my eyes to being like, you can have some progressive social views and yeah. be a Republican like me. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I was like, well, this actually fits. And you're not a jerk like the other guys, so... That's in Maryland too. In Maryland, yeah. That's a that's a pretty blue state. I mean, although I think there may be is a Republican governor now. Hogan is governor, isn't he? Uh, I think that they just lost. Did he lose? Yeah. Huh. But anyway, they I could be wrong. I, it, it's been it's always he, been, there was it's a, always been Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had an well, I was in D.C. for fifteen years and I had an office in Chevy Chase. So, and so I was in my regulator for the securities world was in Maryland. And, you know, I mean, it was. And I, by far, much harder than the SEC. I mean, we're fine with being regulated, but I mean, it was just, it was a lot. And then I eventually had to move my office out of there. It was just too, you know, just like, this is too much, too much, 
work. Um, but keeping uh, up with the regulators. Well, I mean, we have we're registered and we're happy to all our data is online and look up anything you want. It just the problem was the states. So you can have one set of documents for FINRA and you know registration. And some of the state regulators saw rules differently than some of the SEC regulators. So, for example, custody. You know, if I have a stock certificate of a client, do I have custody? One state may say no. The SEC may say yes. How am I going to solve that problem? Like, there's no, and it could cost you, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year yeah. just to. So, um, but uh, anyways, it was great to be in Maryland. I like the state. Uh, uh, but uh, I've always considered it to be sort of a regulatory intense environment is what I guess I remember. So That's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of, yeah. it's a little more hands-on than some of the southern states. Let me put it that way from a business perspective. So Yeah, not very business friendly. And then you bounce. Gener- generally, regulation is not, you know. It's true. There's a, I always tease people because when I. Uh, but there's group. needs for it too. Like this whole FTX crypto thing, like, is a perfect example of why you need some regulation. So for, for sure. So, but you jump from back from Maryland slash DC all the way back to the West Coast for tech. Yeah. That's. I mean, you're kind of bouncing all over the place, honestly, which explains <laughs> well, a lot about you. <laughs> well, listen. I mean, in in life, opportunities present themselves, and everybody has chances. Like. They look back on and say, like, I have a friend who tried to get me in on uh, Bitcoin in 2013, and I didn't do it. And I want to make it a same dollar investment somewhere else. I don't even want to tell you how much money I missed out on because I didn't do that. So, wow. uh, you know, like, I don't, I don't have, usually have a lot of regrets. You know, I, I, I can make, there's no big career move. I made lots of mistakes. Everybody does in starting businesses, but uh, uh, I'm really pleased with that. I, Growing up, if you had told me I was going to live most of my professional career in Seattle, I said, there's no way. Wow. Like, I, it just, I was a Laker fan. It rained up there all the time. I'm like, Seattle, are you kidding me? Jeez. And then somewhere in this area, you met your wife, had some kids. Yeah. This is about the same time, I guess, right? Yeah, I got married. She's from Maryland, and she went to the University of Maryland, and I met her when I was taking a little break after the bar exam at Dewey Beach. And, uh, Dewey. <laughs> A lot of weddings came out of Dewey. <laughs> Actually, not a lot. I just the other way around. Yeah, I was, t- be, I was telling people I, met, I like to tell people I met her church choir just to see my wife laughing. Are you kidding me? Um, but yeah, I convinced her to go out west and we were just married. And she was like, yeah, I'll go try it for two, three years. And, and uh, you know, blinked our eyes and it was 23 years later. And you got two, how many kids you got? Three kids. Three. And how old are they? Yeah. I got one in college, uh, Gray, sophomore Babson. My daughter's a junior at boarding school in um, Crowden, Mass, called Lawrence Academy. Nice. And, uh, sixth grader here. Got it. And you're a pretty avid basketball guy. Did you? Don't you coach some of them? Coach, yeah. I've always coached my oldest son. I coached in an AU program, great one in Seattle for a bunch of years, and was on the board of the Boys and Girls Club there. Um, and so I came out here. Coached my youngest son AU first year, and then found a better program, really good program, so he could be in. And, but I'm coaching his school team. I got you. But I have to be an assistant coach. Travel so much. Yeah, yeah. I, I miss a bunch. I just started coaching my eight eight year olds basketball team here in Mount Pleasant. It's pretty intense. It's great though. They're fun. Well, well, Actually, that's, that's awesome, because you guys. It's just fundamentals, right? 
jump stops. We're doing a lot of yeah. We're doing some great dribbling drills, and we've got uh, we've got a layup drill we do. It's they're actually pretty good. I mean, I'm obviously I'm biased, but um, I'm surprised at how good they are. I've done like 12, 11 and twelve in Virginia one time, and there were some kids that never seen a basketball. So like these guys actually kind of got some you know skills. I feel pretty is, good. Is it boys or girls? It's boys. Boys, yeah. Yeah, seven, eight year olds. Boys, yeah. I think I'm. I think I'm dedicated. I think you're I'm coming, really man. You get the bug. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I wasn't gonna do it this year, and I've done it the last two years. Of my son's school, and I'm just like, I really enjoyed part of it because you're a basketball guy. One of my friends, when I first had my son, he's like Ethan, because I said I don't want to be that dad who coaches a kid. Like it's never a good thing parents coach their kids in my, in my view. But he's like, <laughs> you, you know so much basketball like you do, Joe. He's like, you're gonna get your son to the first team, and you'll be watching like. You're not gonna get to it the first practice. You're gonna, I gotta help because they're gonna be. It's gonna be just other dads who don't know the game like you yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. So you know, like it. And, there, and he was he nailed it. He was right on. Well, I so we have these two 20 minute halves, um, and you swap out. I have ten. You swap them out at the 10 minute mark. It's kind of it was really the only rule. Yeah. And I'm like, do I start? I can't really start my kid. Like first game of the season, it's like I, I, JB, you're gonna have to come out. And he didn't. He didn't care, but. I'm thinking like I can't start my kid right off the bench, you know. I mean, he's got to come off the bench, but yeah, uh, you got to play talent, man. <laughs> Actually, I I saw that. that's why I like I've always coached with an assistant because my son's on the team. I say and I tell the parents like this coach is going to do all the subbing because no, I'm right. sure your kid like my my son is is pretty good, and I'm like I would pull him all the time because I see all his mistakes, but it's probably not the right thing, you know. You want players to play through the mistakes. And yeah, that's true. So you got where well, you were good though. Weren't you with uh? Didn't you have some sort of experience with an NBA coach or something? Yeah, kind? my coach. My first two years, I uh, went to uh, Pomona Claremont Colleges, and so I played for Pomona Pitzer. And the guy who recruited me out of high school was Greg Popovich. Oh, there you, you go. He coached ten years in small school conference. Well, he was title. was that San Antonio where he had all his? Was it that? He's still there. Is it, I, I think know. he's about to get inducted in the Hall of Fame. It's, Everybody played for him last because we were just like we knew he was a good coach, but. Imagine that one conference title ten years, and now you're going to, in the Hall of Fame, considered probably one, certainly one of the top five coaches. All yeah, time. yeah. It's it's. Uh, I loved basketball back in the Jordan and you know Bulls and Pistons, and I mean it was we were glued. But I, I really have kind of lost. It. I don't really watch it anymore. I think I don't watch it. I don't know. It's sort yeah. of sad. I don't. I feel bad about that. But well, I don't feel bad about it. I. Uh, I'm the same way. Like I started following the NBA again. Mad Sonic season tickets forever. Just because that NBA's in your town, you do that. It's a yeah. show, right? But uh, I've always liked college basketball a lot better. I love college basketball. And this year I picked up again because my son's babysitter, our good family friends, is uh, was is Paulo Bancaro okay. in Orlando. So, Got it. And my son, is, you know, he can't watch any college. He just, they love that marketing. It's all NBA for them. Like, you're not going to pick up anything good watching these guys. <laughs> Let's watch a Kentucky game. Yeah. Watch a Kansas game. Um. So you bounce back to tech, or you bounce into tech, right? At a really tough time around two thousand. That's not exactly well. No, I so I joined in ninety. Uh, we took the company public in ninety six. Okay. When I joined, I joined, and we did rapid fast track IPO at the time. It was a different fast track, but we still did a fast IPO, and we actually did it for my first two companies. Both GoToNet was my first company, the second company was MarchX, and we did a really different capital planning process bucked the trends and so we did our founders round seed round and then instead of an a round we did public offering okay so we kept control 
of the company. This but is 1997, got, probably? 1996, we went public. And uh, yeah, by the time we, at the end, like we sold, that first company was a web portal, bought almost two dozen companies to build that portal up. Uh, like Yahoo was our biggest competitor and uh, sold, after a couple of years, sold the majority stake to Paul Allen in that because he wanted a portal asset to go with his uh, charter communications asset. Ah, right, 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 right. And uh, after that, we were missing a mobile place that we merged with a Seattle company. And yeah, that was fascinating. Like, it, that was right around the market collapse. So we, we inked the uh, paperwork to announce the deal in July of 2000. Stock was trading 83 and change. And then that was right a couple weeks before the tech market just started to dive. So we yeah. actually, then we went through our shareholder pro approval process, got approval, closed in October, you know, three months later, and our, uh, stock was had gone down from 83 to like mid 60s. Yeah. So we like, we, we'd inked it at a $4 billion valuation and we sold it to the merger at 1.5. And it kept going down after that. So I, I was lucky. You know, I, I was pretty fortunate because I left right after we concluded the transaction, closed it, and so they would get some liquidity. It's nice because now was no longer a Section 16 officer, and uh, but the market just kept kept going. Yeah, that was a tough down. three years. I started in '97 in the business, and uh, that was kind of the start of the tech bubble. You know, and that was a great three years. I was like, this this job is simple. It's just a, you can pick anything and go straight up. Yeah. And then 2000 hit, and it was like the worst three years ever. Um, and I have a lot of guys that work for me now that are, you know, weren't around then. So I saw I, when this year came around in market market wise, and we'd seen sort of the run up of every asset, you know through really the last quarter of last year, it was kind of like, and you started getting the rumblings of rates and you knew it was coming. And I told these guys, I was like, this sounds, this is, to me, this feels like 2000. So, um, and a lot of that's, you know, already transpired in 2020, 2020 this year for sure with the SPAC blow ups and obviously now crypto blow ups, et cetera. But, um, you know, higher rates make decisions totally different when, the, than when they're at zero, which by the way, would be a good question for you now because I know you recently. Uh, we'll, we'll go to your new business, but do you see similarities between you know in the tech world between two thousand and today at this stage? Or is it a little too early to tell? Uh, well, I I would say it's different. Uh, clearly, like on the sales front, if you're running a business, like there's parallels for sure. Yeah, but the diff primary difference was that the market collapse around two thousand was all because of the tech bubble. Yeah, right. Fair. And so that well, and rates went well. Broader, rates, yeah, reaching kind of impact in the tech sector, right? Uh, but listen, with every market decline, I mean, now you and I have gone through in business two really large ones. You yeah. Know? Well, now this would be a third. It still feels it's certainly not as painful yet as two thousand eight or two thousand. Totally. Um, but I've always used those. Like I think if you've got a a good company and a good product. There's great opportunities in market downturns. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, it as a public going through both of those turns with a public company, you're able to use that. And I think there's parallels with private companies too to uh, 
really make some hardcore changes because kind of the microscope is off you. Everybody's like, well, everything is down. Yeah. Whereas if you want to make those hardcore pivots in your business, when the market's going up, like you're going to be an outlier and you're going to have some angry shareholders and investors. Right. But market downturns allows you to make kind of those pivots and get back to a path that can lead to accelerated growth in whatever business vertical you're in. So you, um, how long you were you with a company that in 2000? When did that that time end? I left right. So that was when I left, uh, joined in 1996, and we sold it effectively in 2000. Got it. And then after that, took took some time off to save my marriage because I've been working seven days a week, coming home at 11 o'clock every night because uh, we're just sprinting. You know, you're in the internet rat race. And you know, like I said, we bought 24 companies where young people didn't know any better. It was a, it was a series of sprints for us. Uh, and spent that time, considered moving back to the East Coast. Actually looked in Charleston at the time, almost had a house yeah, downtown. Yeah. Um, but did some introspection and, and there's just still too much opportunity in Seattle. So I uh, went back to Seattle, got a couple of co-founders together from the first company, started whiteboarding some business models and start a negotiation with a company in Provo to use as our primary asset to kind of do a very similar business model, which was have an underlying business, not do your A round, get some public currency around the gate, use that currency to go and start cobbling up assets. Yep. Hmm. So exciting. Um, everything looks exciting in hindsight, I describe it, but you know, when you start a business, Oh, there's a lot of shit you got to shovel. So there's a lot of uns- people always look at the exits and they're like, oh, oh, oh my right. gosh. They don't understand all the, I don't want to say hard work because everybody's working hard, but there's a lot of not sexy stuff to it. Well, you're, you, I mean, I think in general, you sort of, your, your interests are taking a, a sort of ideas and concepts and making it into a business. It seems like you've done that multiple times now. So, yeah. um, but the, your, your, your role in those things, and I talked to other executives and VC guys, et cetera. And there's so many unex- unforeseen and nothing's going to go the way you expect. It's actually probably everything sort of doesn't, I don't say goes wrong, but it doesn't go anywhere where, the way you thought. So um, it's funny how you have to kind of adapt to that. I think leaders of businesses especially have to be sort of like chameleons, you know, they gotta, I mean, they have to have their, you know, they're particularly I don't know, special traits, but they got to adapt to whatever comes along the way and sort of, you know, uh, see if they can handle it. So I've learned that over the years, but yeah. Well, you kind of, I always laugh because, you know, like my son, who's really driven to be an entrepreneur, my oldest son, that's why he's at Big Baps and, um, is one of these guys who's constantly trying to absorb information from well-known leaders, right? Read whatever yeah, book, totally. Elon Musk, you know, and follows this guy religiously on social media, Gary Vee. Uh, and, you know, I always try to tell him, my nugget is that there's great leaders of all kinds of, you know, there's certain characteristics go across them, but there's no one model. Like, I hate to tell him, like, you know, I didn't give the DNA for you to be Elon Musk. Fair <laughs> enough. You know, he's rare. But, you know, there's many entrepreneurs, you know, probably most, way more successful than me, like, well, just very varying personalities, right? There's some common characteristics, like high level of an emotional maturity. Totally. Emotional IQ is really high. Tenacity. 
Like yeah. just getting back up over and over and getting, I mean, yeah. most of the folks we've had on the, the whole thing on this podcast of being on the rocks is about like coming over life, you know, overcoming life's largest challenges and how do you do it. And, but I've seen a, it takes intelligence, but it also takes just, you're going to get beat up a lot. Like you're going to fail a lot. You got to like, this yeah. normal rule is like, everybody will tell you this. I'm not saying stuff that everybody doesn't know. Like fail fast, <laughs> swing for the fences and fail fast and learn and pivot uh, you know, don't, don't make the same mistakes twice. Well, when we started in this business, uh, in money management business, we were, I was a cold caller in DC. So I called lawyers and lobbyists and I was just telling another guy, this that's stuff. a great sales job, by the way. It was great, great man. 600 calls a day. So the math, yeah. it was just a sort of a numbers thing. And I, I talked to my, my team about it because cold calling is like, no way in money management does that anymore. That's embarrassing that it, it, you know, it was 600 calls a day. You got started at seven, you got off at 9 PM. You had a little 30 minute lunch break. This is all commission, by the way, too. There's no salary. And then from those 600 calls, Monday through Saturday, you get 100 leads a week. That would literally say, okay, you got an idea, something interesting, call me back. I'd be willing to listen further. From those 100, you get one client. And that client would maybe give you 20 grand. I mean, it was whatever. So it was a numbers game. So, I mean, we had a sheet of paper. And it was, it was a race of no's. How many no's? How quickly can you get as many no's as possible? And so I tell people that, like, I try to get as many no's as possible because I know the payday is coming down the road. So You were Bud Fox. <laughs> it, it, was, it was drilled into me by some hardcore sales guys. But, yeah, so, but think about that. That's, I bet you, if you're recommending people want to go and go down your path, in your career path, like, what a incredible... That's kind of similar to... I bet you would advise people, like, what a great way to learn your business from the bottom up. And oh, the hard totally. way. It's yeah. a school of hard knocks. Like, I always advise people, and they hate seeing this. I used to have people, a couple of friends of uh, sons or daughters of my friends who come meet with me that are about to graduate from Ivy League school, some prestigious West Coast school. And I said, well, I might be the least popular person in your network because I'm going to tell you something nobody else is going to tell you. <laughs> and you're going to look at me and say, he's crazy. But I get, come back and see me in 10 or 15 years, tell me if you'll agree with me. You need to not join the rat race and try It's not about the first job you get. Yeah. If you want to go into business, whatever you want to go do, you want to be a CEO, you want to go, you got to learn sales. Oh, for sure. For and sure. the harder the sales job, the better. Get in with the best company that can teach you the best sales training. Like in Seattle, that's Nordstrom. So I tell these people coming from like an Ivy League school, like, go get a job, sales job in Nordstrom for a year. Mm. Great customer service, customer's never wrong. You're gonna learn, the, what you learn in that job is going to help you exponentially wherever you wanna go. Totally. And So what did you do, um, so during this entire extensive and intense business career, you were, you had a family that you kept together and well, like, I, yeah. I, I that's a challenge. <laughs> I mean, I'm a single dad, so, you know, I obviously have my own perspective on this thing, but, uh, and I have my kids a lot. I'm really happy about that, but I have to work around the schedule. I know that Thursdays at two o'clock, I'm picking them up and I got them till Monday and, you know, Friday, you know, so I have, you know, come, I got to work around the time that I have with them, which is fine, but, you know, how are you able to build a family and maintain a, you know, a positive and productive environment? Super hard. I'm sure if you had my wife here, she'd probably say, you can eat this sucked at it. But because uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hear this. <laughs> you know, I, I'm competitive. And, Clearly you know, not. I mean, I, look at you now. I mean, you have great kids that are yeah. doing well, and you're living a great life. So 
you know, a yeah. little bit of credit. Yeah, no, it, it, it's really hard to do. Like, I, I, I can't give people advice on how to tell people, like, listen, communicate, because it's going to be hard and it's going to feel like, you know, there's a division of responsibilities and you're trying to share it. And it's always going to feel like you're the short of sick. I just read, you may have saw the headlines, like, Michelle Obama's came out with the art, uh, a book or something, but there's an article about it in a UK paper saying, like, the headline says that I hated Barack for 10 years. Hated him. I didn't see that. Um, and then, so I read, you know, the article, and the article saying that he was so gung ho about his political career, he's working all the time. I'm raising these two girls, and like I shirked my career to help in the division of labor so he could prioritize what he was doing. And she got hated him for 10 years. And like, I'm sure my wife probably felt that, you know, like I, I tease you, but it's probably true. Like when I sold my first company, I probably spent a year just trying to save my marriage. Like I was yeah. just gone. Like I yeah, wasn't yeah. supportive. This was before we had kids, but I moved her away from all her friends, lifelong friends in Maryland to the West Coast, and you know I was more than you know it was twenty four seven. I'd be getting calls in the night. I'd take it and came home really late. So you know I wasn't a great person in marriage. I'm blessed that my wife was willing to you know give me a chance to make those things up because as you get older. Like in my second company, you start realize it's not as serious as Prince. You can still work really hard and find a little bit better balance. Right. And so you took some time to develop your family, develop those relationships. Uh, and then back, I guess, what, in the last year or two, you've now jumped into a new asset. Yeah, jumped back in. Can't stop. Can't take the entrepreneur out of me. Political <laughs> career is gone. I'm Wait, so I mean, don't, don't tell you it's gone yet. I mean, you got time. You're a no, young man. I'm, so. I'm, I'm fine being the person, the man behind the man now. The rest of my life, just writing checks and influencing. Like I gave that up. I realized in 2000 that uh, I had I those aspirations were uh, less fulfilling to me than what I had just done with that tech business. You know, uh -huh. Taking it from a startup to uh, as crazy as it was. Uh, I mean, it was a lot of fun and stressful every freaking day and, you know, you, you're learning things for the first time because all the executives were young and we were trying to yeah. figure it out, um, but I loved it. And so that's why I didn't move back east uh, in 2000, we sold it, jumped right back in with the same cruise, started our next company. And so when I left my last company, March X, in 19 to come here. It was my turn. All the other co-founders had left. I was like, now it's my turn. I've been running the company. And so it's time for you guys to step in. And, and I think they thought I'd be around and be there to help. But I moved immediately to my favorite city in the world, Charleston. Charleston. There you go. And, uh, and when I came here, I made a bunch of investments. And I knew, you know, I'm not a good enough golfer to play golf every day. And, uh, you know, you I, tried, I, I, I just had the bug. Like, I had the... the I knew that I was going to be looking for my next company to, to kind of push my chips in and and take an operational role. And uh, so I found it. Like, I, I there's a couple, there's one we're always looking at, uh, but then I found the one cybersecurity company out of California. Uh, and I didn't know a lot about cybersecurity, but I managed teams that been responsible for cybersecurity at my last company, March X, but um, didn't know a ton about it. but. The, it's a startup. It's a lot of the same stuff you have to do in a startup. I know that model. I know how to take a product or service and um, build it yeah. and, and hit the milestones so you can achieve your goals. And in this case, we need to get to an A round fast. Cash is running out. 
and yep. got to that close round. Um, after that, it's a you know you have a limited time frame on that. If you've been in business a lot, you're not smart. We didn't throw any parties. We never throw any parties when I close financing rounds because that just adds to the pressure. You know, that, now it's right. time like now we got to execute. Uh, and so then we went and put on my hat, traveled a lot, closed a lot, tried to close a lot of deals, taking this new technology to the market, cybersecurity, and um, had a lot. I mean, it's been stressful, harder on my family, but a little more balanced. Usually, you try to travel two or three days every week. That's it. But talk to me about cybersecurity now, though, because there's a ton, and it's this confusing space, and we actually kind of pay attention to it. So, yeah. how do you? How do, you, how do you decide that what your company offers is going to be a solution versus one of the other many? Um, I mean, what, what's so particularly special about your, your product offering or, and how did you come to that conclusion? No, it's a great question. I, why I decided to join this company, I invested in it, I was helping them, I was doing some like consulting for them, but I sat in on a couple of trials, they were doing with customers. And the technology in a really short period of time, a week or two weeks, was able to sell itself. And for me, coming from my last company, MarchX, had pivoted for the last 10 years uh, around this really complicated call analytics software company. And so the sales times there, like we're selling really large call center operations like General Motors, State Farm. and those contracts take forever to land. The integrations yeah, yeah. are really hard. It's not sexy technology. And now to be sitting in these trials and watching Mixmo be compared to the other existing cybersecurity tools in the platform and, and differentiate itself really quickly, I'm like, it's fascinating to me. Like I just, I've never worked with technology that operated that fast and, and was able to kind of sell itself. So I can come in, put on my sales hat and not screw things up and help this company uh, really continue to accelerate its growth to get to its next marker. So we, but it's a crowded space. Like, it, yeah. it, like I, I, I've been in it now for two years and, and I, I love the fact that I was learning stuff every day. And one of the problems why the cybersecurity industry from an investment perspective is so fascinating is that cybersecurity needs a complete overhaul across government and private enterprise. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're, I'll give you one example. Like there's a local company here, you and I know, uh, on Starkman, like they're, they'll, companies like that will come in and run assessments yeah. for government groups or private companies. And those assessments are 30 pages long of all these vulnerabilities, outdated software, you know, they, they go into control, like policies and procedures, control elements. Right. Sure. Um, and every one of those things is a potential avenue for the threat actors to get in. And the Chinese have two over estimated over two hundred thousand people every day who's probing. Wow. Finding those vulnerabilities, they want to get in and cause that you know, every week you're reading about the next breach, right? Right. So that's the massive problem with cybersecurity. Like like how do you how does this and there's within there's all kinds of segments in cybersecurity, right? You've got endpoint, you've got data center, you've got policy tools, um, but fundamentally they all have to solve the same mission, right? Which is to let a company go about its business with all the data it has and not be breached. Right, 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 right. And uh, so what Mixmo does that was so fascinating to me, it, it is a threat detection 
technology. And I didn't have to come in by the, uh, my buddy who was the co-founder with me in prior two companies had already taken this company over and done what I think great entrepreneurs do. He came in and realized that it's a decent business, but it's struggling growing. And so he spent first year or so just talking to customers. Gotcha. Yeah, what yeah. are your biggest pain points? What are your problems like, with this platform or that platform? And then he went and through his network of people brought in this great uh, world-renowned AI expert, Dr. Igor Mezik, and he ha- was not an expert in cybersecurity, but it, his uh, area of science he's an expert in had great applicability and could actually solve one of his problems, which is how do you take a massive data massive data sets and mine through it really quickly to find the integrators of compromise. Got it. And so that work had already been done when I joined. Like I joined and sat in the PLCs when we were first taking a new platform out to the market. Got it. And you guys, and and this is a good time to talk about. It, you did y'all did a, a financing in the last twelve months, I think, right? Yep. We closed our B round, so we got. Uh, so that was a fascinating prospect. It was before. You know, the market was, it was still early. Yeah. We got it done uh, before things started to turn further south. And, you know, the, the money is still there. Like it, you and I both know that, I mean, for me, even though I had never, you know, prior to companies had not taken private equity or venture capital money, I got lots of friends who run big funds and lots of contacts there. So, and all of them have the same problem, right? There's, there's just been an inordinate amount of money invested in what I call the private market. Yeah. VCs and PEs can totally. buy those lines are blurred now, right? And they got to put that money to work. Yep. Like they can't just come invest with Joe Warren right. and their shareholders or something. They're not allowed to. And it's a problem in the industry. I mean, the, you know, and we avoided that in our world with, you know, because we'll just do one on one deals or, you know, we don't need to have capital deployed just to have it deployed. But it's an issue with the industry for sure. Big issue. And, Right now, what I've seen, what's fascinating is that after we closed our round, so we had we had a lot of demand for our round. Like cybersecurity is a hot space, and yeah, most most large. When did y'all finish that round, by the way? What was it? Uh, March. Okay. Yeah, and we raised at this point a little bit over fifty million dollars, and uh, for the B round, so we're that, and we brought in a great partner that can help us, uh, PSG, part of Providence equity and they uh, are a fantastic part because they we brought them in specifically because they have, have the capacity whether they will or not if we continue to execute to lead a C round if we were yeah. if that's in our, if that's in our our plan so um, but the demand was there because a lot of uh, the private money is looking to hedge their bets in cybersecurity you know they all right. want if they got two, they want five, and then they want one in this network security. They want one on endpoint security, so they want to have a blended portfolio. Um, so that part was fascinating, but and, and I tell you that that whatever business you're in, you and I both know like that money is still there. The challenge has happened since the market is compressed here and started is that. Less of the deals are being done, not because the money's not there, but because there's valuation issues. Yeah. And totally. I mean, you know, I, mean, I advise a lot of my friends, you know, there's like people who run their company. If you see, take my company, Mixmode, as an example, Mixmode closes this round at this multiple 
this valuation. There's you know there's dozens of other cybersecurity companies who owners who are looking at that saying, well, I've got comparable growth, right, and love my products better. You know they've got their own reasons to say that we're better than them, so I want that valuation. But the market has changed, right? It totally has changed. I mean. Profitability, that's the conversation I'm having with my executives now is that, hey, you know, it's not all top line. Like you have to be able to make a profit at some point. And it's a, it, and that's not really been a factor probably since 05, 06, 07 when rates were higher. I mean, you know, you now can park, you know, one year treasury or CDS. All the other is paying, a, you know, one month CD was paying four and a quarter. I mean, you know, that's, it's not amazing, but that's, that's guaranteed. Yeah. And so I, I, there's a whole bastion of young executives that have come up in the last 20 years that have never seen what a, you know, what a requirement for profitability is. And it's hard to balance that out. So. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a great point. Like, I've got a fascinating take on that because our first company, GoToNet, when we went public, we got a lot of criticism because the CEO of that company had previously been the CEO of a company called Everlast. Remember the boxing apparel? Yeah, yeah. And there were a couple quarters there or monthly periods where he struggled to make payroll. Yeah. And he's like, I'm never going to be in that position again. So we are going to operate this business to make money from day one, as early as we can. And that was in our DNA. And we were getting criticism from a lot of our analysts saying like, at the time we went public like right around when Amazon went public. And Amazon, of course, historically is not care about that. Yeah, they're just right. they're talking about top line growth, and they'll take the the hits from their investors uh, because they're like and, and look at where it's gotten. We can't argue with it, right? So there are people arguing. It's like, why are you worried about that? This is a growth period, like like. But that's changed. Invest, that's, invest, invest. I think the I think the investment and analyst community too has hasn't. I mean, value the concept of running a profitable value business has been. I mean, it's been. It's been almost 20 years since that concept worked. So there's a whole folks that in, in, in our industry that don't know anything about it. I mean, they've never seen it. They don't remember money market at 6%. They weren't around. Yeah. And, you know, I, my guys, I'm like, our job just got a lot easier. If we can just park cash and get five, you know, you know, we're, not, we're only trying to get eight, nine, ten. Like, we're not trying to make, you know, home runs every day. But, yeah. but I think it's going to be here for a while, and I think it's going to be something that, you know, both the, the company and the executives of the company have to handle and the investment community has to handle now. Like, uh, I totally agree. Like we're, we're seeing in my business now is that the, the, the smarter, actually I don't want to criticize any customers, but like, so we have government customers and we have private enterprise and one of our verticals is financial services space. Financial services customers are ahead of everybody. They're leading the curve. Like they are going back to their cybersecurity teams and saying, tighten your belt, tighten your yeah. belt. Like we have to plan for this being a multi-year down market. Maybe it winds up not being that way, but make budget decisions assuming that's the case. Right. And other industries are going to all catch up. I've gone, you and I've been through a couple Several. of cycles. We yeah. know they're all going to catch up with it. And you know, it starts with financial services. Think about the tech companies that are already doing layoffs to get in front of this. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, large layoffs like it's coming. So. Big. Um, and so that's just what good companies do to yeah. get in front of it, right? And it's coming for everybody, so you've got to prepare for it. Like if you're, if you have a business that is not high growth, you need to like, and really high, because your product is selling off the shelves, right. which gets harder to do in the down economy anyway, you need to make steps. Like what we did at our first two companies, we always said, 
neither of them on the top line grew nearly as fast as anybody else tech space, but our operating profits beat everybody. So in a down market, we became a good hedge for a lot of investors, right? Because they're like, well, this company spin off cash, they got dividend, right? And you know, tech companies don't do that. Yeah. So we have a lot of executives that run private or you know earlier mid stage companies, and uh, I've had this conversation. But if you you know being having had, having being that you've gone through a new fundraising. You've been through three of these cycles now. This will be the third. I mean, what advice would you give somebody that's got a, that's in their second, third, fourth year of a company that's growing, you know, doubling sales every year, but you know now has this new, I don't know, weight over its shoulder? I mean, how would you how would you how would you tell them to operate? Well, I mean, I think first it depends on what their exit, what's their strategy. Yeah. Right? Are they looking for an exit in near term? A lot of people don't. A lot of people want to run their business, and it depends how you're. you're Cap table is yeah. structured right. What pressures you're feeling there, but you know the if you've got good top line growth, you don't you still need to tighten your belt. Like it's all needs to be related to what impact this is going to have on your sales. Like, are you, is your margin going to go down on your products in the next two years? Mm-hmm. Talking to your customers, seeing knowing that they're going to have budget crunch. Like if it's a B two C play, clearly you got to think about that, right? Which is people may have less money to spend. Right, right, right. right, right. If it's a B2B play, what type of business are you selling to? Like, in our space, the government wants, because there's so much money being thrown at cybersecurity, filling this gap around these problems, they're not feeling that crunch. Like, there's more money. Biden administration's committed a lot of money in the next three years toward this, and the next administration's going to have to do it, too, because the Chinese are kicking our butt. Yeah, yeah. And we got to catch up. So that... Isn't there? You still, when you're going through the government, got to go through procurement, got a, a lot of budgetary issues. But um, it, you, know, you have to really understand what on your sales cycle, what your margins look like, assuming that this is going to be a prolonged economic downturn. Yeah, that's right? right. And and then just plan accordingly. Like you know, how do you differentiate yourself? And I'd say most importantly, I've been through this is if I'm really worried and my business is going to be really challenged by this. This is a great opportunity to look at it and say, what hard changes can I make now? Because it's a good time to do it when the market is down, right? Like you need to make a pivot in your business because you've got one product set, for example, that's not selling great. Yeah. And, you know, like fail fast. That, you know, because now everybody's going to be struggling. So you have this great chance to go and make some hard changes and not be an outlier where people say, man, that company's just messed up, hmm. right? Well, after hearing this interview and thinking about this, I now realize like your business background is as colorful as your golfing outfits. So um, <laughs> I realize a little bit of where this all comes but from. I have to do that. You don't have a personality. You got the pride of the clothes. Are I figure that's why you and I are kin. It gets long. Well, but you're, you're, it's, Ethan, I say it's amazing what you've accomplished and you know, so many companies you've run and so much advice and built a family and now you've come to Daniel Island and everybody knows you and so I'm, I'm just congratulations to you and thanks for sharing time with us today because you know our people really listen to these things and you've got a lot to offer so i appreciate the time no you're very welcome and uh thanks for doing it